Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nat Chang Rinpoche. Chapter 29, Part 1. Fields of the unknowable and inexpressible. And if you can fasten on that moment and expand through the afterglow, you can reverse your mind in time and travel back to when the earth was formed, the sky was born and the universe began. Goodbye forever. I never entered the Nostral Café again, and at this point in time, I can't remember the actual name of the café. It may have been the cave or the cavern. Too much time has passed to recall. My meeting with Jack indicated that another epoch of life was over. I was glad, however, that Although I'd been culturally foreign, Jack had seen some value in the Buddhist I'd become. His words, I think this Buddhism thing is turning you into a wise man or something, had been meaningful to me. I hadn't taken it as a compliment, but as an indication that I hadn't entirely failed in terms of living as a Nakpa in the West. That is what Kyabje Dujum Rinpoche had encouraged, and I'd attempted to follow his advice to the best of my ability. I didn't feel I had done that well. Maybe, however, in spite of the bizarre scene in the Nostral Café, with its degraded, demeaning descriptions of Cynthia, something good had come out of it. Maybe I'd planted some seeds for Jack's better relationships with ladies and for his developing confidence in his innate capacity for courage. I was glad Jack had freed himself from a bad marriage. Having seen Cynthia and exchanged a few words, I felt that Steve Bruce had described her accurately. I had asked him what she was like, and he'd replied, better not to know. I felt sorry for her. Being obese, let alone morbidly obese, is a sad trap for a human being. I know. I put on weight from time to time. Somehow, however, I always managed to reverse the situation through self-control and exercise. But then I have been lucky to have had recourse to vows. I know that if I make a vow, there is no possibility of breaking it. I am careful what vows I make and never make vows that I cannot keep. I conjectured that Cynthia must have been a sad, frustrated person who ate for comfort. Maybe she had little else in life to give her joy. She must have known that Jack didn't love her, but then she didn't love Jack. Jack had merely been an acquisition. Cynthia had merely been a fallback choice because Jack had no self-confidence and felt his choices were limited. It had been a recipe for disaster from the outset and their parents were not sufficiently intelligent 
or kindly to act differently. Both sets of parents wanted a business deal because that is how they saw life. This much was clear to me without a psychology degree. I wished her well and hoped she'd be able to make a better life for herself. I wished Jack well. I had the sense that he would develop if he was able to remember my words in relation to finding a woman who would be his friend. When Steve had told me it was better not to know what Cynthia was like, I'd replied that I felt it would be useful to know, to understand Jack better. So Steve told me. She sulks. Steve had nicknamed her the Incredible Sulk. She's a hypochondriac like Jack's mother. She finds Monty Python irritating, but enjoys Benny Hill. As to her being attractive, Ron and I think Jack would have made a better looking girl. Basically, she's a water buffalo who laughs like a hyena and prattles like a parrot. Of course, I'd asked Steve what he thought the attraction was as far as Jack was concerned. Steve had told me Jack saw himself as looking like a gnome. Jack was short and concluded that his chances of romance were negligible. I remembered the poster I'd drawn for Savage Cabbage. Jack wasn't keen on the poster and had said, that's bloody awful. You made me look like a sodding gnome. Ron laughed and replied, Perfect likeness then. Don't see what a canary like you got a complain about. Ron had no mercy on Jack. Thinking back to the sad young woman I'd met in the Nostril Cafe, I couldn't help wondering what her story might have been. I guess that Jack wasn't exactly Prince Charming. I also wondered about Jack's parents. Had they really disowned him? I assumed they had, because it would have been typical of them. I'd met Jack's parents once. They'd be no great loss to Jack. They'd probably adopt Cynthia as a pseudo-daughter. They'd probably felt morally righteous in disowning Jack, and maybe they felt it necessary in order to save face with Cynthia's parents. My father, for all his shortcomings, was a model of parental perfection in comparison with those sad, cardboard cut-out examples of humanity. Then I felt sorry for them. What a miserable fate, to become constipated with status to such an extent. And then Jack. Jack had a great deal to learn in terms of relating to ladies and relating to himself in relation to ladies. He would have had no help from his parents in this regard and he'd not had Annalie Mandelbaum to educate him. It occurred to me that I'd had 
adventitious covert coaching and was thus not exactly mainstream in how I related to women. I could therefore not feel too superior in terms of my view of Jack's attitudes. He'd not had any of my advantages in life. In addition to Annalee Mandelbaum, I'd had the example of the Trevelyans, the parents of Alice, and the parents of Steve Bruce. In terms of girlfriends, Alice and Lindy had been my intellectual and educational superiors, so I had no sense of women as subordinate. I hoped that maybe someone kind and suitably feisty could improve Jack. Sometimes that's all it takes. A person has to have reasons to change, and maybe the right lady could provide those reasons for Jack. I went home, watched Genghis Khan on television with my mother, and got to see a few camels. Time was ticking away. It was both exciting and vacuous. I'd arranged everything, and now events would take care of themselves. I thought about my meeting with Jumping Jack Flashman off and on during the days leading up to my departure. Despite the fact that there were facets of Jack of which I was critical, his life seemed to contain something from which I could learn. If I could decipher it. In some ways, Jack had landed on his feet. He'd been lucky, but he'd made that luck work. Some people squander their luck, but Jack had invested it and was reaping the dividends. He'd become an electrician's mate, more or less a fetch and carry menial, but he'd studied to become an electrician. Now he was his own man with his own van. And more than that, he had interesting prospects. There was some sense of social poetry in Jack becoming an electrician. He'd returned to his roots. His upper working, lower middle class parents had done a runner from Wiltshire and cut themselves off from everyone they'd ever known. They'd re-established themselves in Surrey as nouveau middle aspiring to upper middle class, replete with all the painfully silly, pretentious affectations they imagined were upper middle class. That's why I'd been banned from their house. I was working class and they wanted Jack, or John as he was to them, to have nothing to do with the lower echelons. I'd talked about this with the ladies in Hotwells, and Penelope had an interesting observation to make. The reason they disliked you so much was probably because you were so similar to them, from their perspective. They were pretending to be upper middle class and they imagined you were engaged in the same pretense. The problem for them, from what you've explained of your encounters, 
was that you were far more skilled than they were in the pretense. You were far more cultured and had a far larger vocabulary. That's why they told Jack you were pretentious and that you gave yourself airs. You just made them feel too uncomfortable. Imagine how they must have felt when a 16-year-old upstaged them at their own charade. That had come as a complete surprise to me, but it made sense immediately. What made it even worse, I realised, was that I must have come across as utterly blasé in my affectations. And there was I, having no idea at all that there was anything unusual about my conversational mien. Steve Bruce's parents were a culturally educated middle-class couple, but they had no problem with me. Ron Larkin's parents were upper-middle-class, and they had no problems with me either. Their take seemed to be that I was polite and well-spoken. I was equipped with an, an unusually wide vocabulary and I was culturally au fait with a broad range of the arts. I had my father to thank for my vocabulary. He was a self-made man who'd become a major in the army. He'd started out as a 14-year-old dock worker in Chatham, Kent. My mother was a highly cultured woman whose considerable family fortunes had crashed in the war due to her father's refusal to teach Nazi propaganda in the school of which he was the headmaster. Be that as it may, Jack's parents had tried to force him into the vector they'd taken, only to have him find a career that was more in line with their own despised origins. Jack had hated grammar school. He hated academic study but thrived as soon as he'd been taken on by an electrician. He'd then gone on to study electronics. He now knew about sound and lighting systems. He had his everyday work as an electrician, but he also fixed amplifiers, rewired guitars, and sometimes set up the electrics on stage for bands. He'd got back to the place he loved to be, whereas I'd failed. He told me how a band member had seen him eyeing up the drum kit and asked him if he was interested in drumming. He'd said that he used to be a drummer and the fellow had said, let's see what you can do then. Jack sat himself at the drums and shook, rattled and rolled. He made his name doing that as the sound and light man who was a real part of the scene. Jack had never gone back to drumming, but it had stood him in good stead and established his name as the man to hire. There was a perfection in that which I admired. One burst on the drums hadn't inflated Jack with impossible dreams. He'd simply been able to perform for five minutes and let it go. That was impressive. 
it made sense of his life. He was a sound and light engineer who'd enhanced his reputation by once having been a drummer. He was happy with that and I respected him for it. He knew what he wanted from life. He knew various people in different bands. He had plans. He was going to develop jumping jack amplification. He planned to develop an amplifier that could compete with the Marshall. He had ideas about making a better humbucker guitar pickup. He had ideas about effects pedals. He had endless ideas. He thought that it wasn't impossible that he might even end up as an electrician to the gods. Those were his words. But he also said that he wouldn't be holding his breath. The words of the Who song went through my mind. Happy Jack wasn't tall, but he was a man. He lived in the sand in the Isle of Man. That made me happy. What made me even happier, however, was when I realised that I had no envy. I was simply happy for Jack. I was happy he'd crawled out the wreckage of a life that had been imposed on him. He had a good career, whatever his parents might think about it. It was a good profession and one that would give him pride in himself. Maybe he'd develop some bravery. Maybe I'd hear of him one day in The Melody Maker, but then I no longer read that, or The New Musical Express. I used to read it as a businessman would read The Financial Times, but those days were gone. What was it about me, though? I'd accepted that my dreams had evaporated and I had no resentment that Jack's dream was going to fly. I had no belief in destiny, so there was nothing to be gained by speculating in that direction. I kept forgetting about Jack, but then, when I was least expecting it, I found myself feeling that I had something to learn from that peculiar scenario in the Nostril Café. Every time I looked at it, I came to the same conclusion. It meant nothing more than it was. It was sad in some ways and amusing in others. I told my mother about it and she also found it both sad and amusing. <laughs>